Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele, and we are speaking with Joan Grossman today. Joan Grossman is an independent media artist, producer, and scholar based in Brooklyn, New York, who has created work for cinema, television, museums, and live performances. Her work has been screened and exhibited in more than 25 countries and has won numerous awards with projects in Africa, China, Russia, and throughout Europe. Joan has a PhD in media and philosophy from the European Graduate School in Sasfe, Switzerland, where she worked with all kinds of leading theorists and filmmakers, such as Claude Landsman, Agnes Varda, Peter Greenaway, Avital Ronel, Baudrillard, Derrida, and a host of others. Her book, Blackout on Memory and Catastrophe, uh, was published by Atropos Press, and that is what we are discussing in today's interview. So enjoy. Joan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Where are you located, Joan? I am in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, great. How have you been uh, holding up over there? Well, I would say this is an unusual time. Um, Getting used to doing a lot of things outside. I had dinner with a friend outside mid-February last night, and we we were actually kind of commending the strength of our people to be able to do you know endure adapt but uh it's difficult yeah have you been you you're okay yourself yes i'm well i mean and i have no personal complaints i i you know i feel for just the the greater the greater ills of of this moment yeah same here same here i find it hard to complain when so many people i know have been through uh, real catastrophes over the last year. Um, Sergio and I have been pretty safe and sound over here, and we've been able to isolate. So I feel very fortunate. Um, let's let's sort of get straight into it. Let's talk about um, the book Blackout on Memory and Catastrophe. When when you were writing this, it was published in two thousand eight. What was some of your thinking before going into this, and why did you write the book? Well, I am a filmmaker and uh, a media artist, so I work in um, different kinds of experimental forms of media, usually based on nonfiction material. And uh, I wrote that book actually as part of a PhD dissertation, and um, I hadn't ever intended to do a PhD and wasn't really on my agenda, but I had done a master's degree years before and, and uh, a, a philosopher who was a professor of mine started a new program that was very much interested in intersections between art, media, and philosophy. And that sounded extremely interesting to me. And at the time when he invited me into the program, uh, I had done a number of projects that dealt with war, uh, specifically World War II. And um, it was something I just thought about all the time. You know, it was something I was really trying to uh, understand visually. You know, how do you, how do you represent things that are so impossible to represent uh, and in filmmaking, even in experimental modes, uh, that's that became a big question for me. 
And so when I was doing this program and I was um, developing an idea for a dissertation and, and which became the book, I was simultaneously working on a project uh, which I thought would be a documentary about my grandfather who had uh, been raised, grew up in Eastern Poland, um, Jewish, and had left around 1920. And spent, the family, he and two brothers left, uh, the family that stayed perished in the Holocaust. And I went there, I went to Poland with the idea of, well, I went there actually for another project. I was helping a friend research another film but while I was there, I got into this idea of trying to find out where my grandfather had grown up and what this place was like. And the place was disappeared in a way. It had been on the front lines of the German-Russian fighting. So 80% of it, this area was destroyed. Uh, there was an archive that had been moved to a regional um, center and had burned down. And um, so that piece and the writing of the book were, were really simultaneously developed and thought about. And that piece ended up not being a documentary about my grandfather because there was not enough information to do a documentary. And I did a very large scale video installation on four screens that surrounded the viewer uh, that was called Accidents of Memory. And I went to all these places in Eastern Poland that had been destroyed, but had now kind of been overgrown in a way that made them really kind of, some of them, not all of them, kind of pastoral, you know, kind of this way uh, history gets consumed, you know, and, and how do we how do we hold on to it? So it, you know, so I was simultaneously asking these questions about representation and 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 just disappearance and how did you start with the concept of the blackout was this something you had been thinking about sort of prior to getting into this or was this something that arose as you were thinking about these these things um well it i don't remember what when when i thought about the word blackout but i was certainly interested in the filmic device of fading to black and so there's this notion of, you know, a kind of way you can shift time periods, shift space, shift thinking in a fade to black in film. And then I was also interested in how to, how to superimpose notions of psychoanalysis onto history. How do we, how do we, try to account for so the traumatic blackout that happens say to an individual in in all kinds of trauma uh where there's just things that can't be remembered i became interested in in that structure as a way to analyze and think about history in the context of war and genocide it's and other been it's been yeah. something that I've thought a lot about. Um, I myself am a veteran. The gentleman who's running the 
uh, soundboard here, Sergio Kochergin, is also a, a veteran. We met each other in the Marine Corps. We were in the same platoon together. Uh, went to Iraq twice. And all of the concepts in your book, from the concept of recalling traumatic events, uh, the sort of interplay between how those events are recalled you know, subjectively and then how they're portrayed in this collective media landscape, these are the types of things that you know Sergio and I I think have been trying to come to grips with in many different ways over the last 15 years since we've returned home from the war. And it seems clear to me that it's almost like for us, you know, we'll talk with uh, former Marines and people who had experienced the same things that we experienced, at least objectively speaking, we're in the same place, you know, the location is two or three feet away from each other. But out of those 45 men in the platoon, uh, you will get 45 different, way different perspectives of what happened and even like specific moments or events where people recall them radically different uh, than, than other people. It's been something that I've been thinking about for a long time. And, and you know, your, I think your book really opened up a lot of ideas and questions for me about how we can maybe better recall those events or even um, whether or not it's worth recalling them. I mean, I think part of what you are, are getting at, at least later in the book, and now we're, I'm, I'm jumping out of, out of chronological order, but that's this, sometimes it's better not to remember, you know, that this like constant archival information, like in our war, for instance, I like that you sort of referenced it as not a clash of civilizations, but as like this cosmetic war, you know, both the Gulf War and the, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, it was very jarring to enter into this hyper-patriotic context of post-9-11 America and then go to a war that, you know, half of the country didn't agree with, the other half of the country did, uh, and then to come back from that war and it essentially not exist. By the time we got out in 2006, it was still there. It was the focal point of the primaries in 2007 between Obama and Clinton and all of this. But by the time George Bush leaves office, the financial collapse hits in 2008. Since then, it's been like this non-existent war that's been going on. Um, and yet we still get all of these images. And now on social media, you know, one of the things I was really interested to talk to you about is, you know, you wrote this book 13 years ago. Um, now with social media and the images on your phone, in your pocket every day. I remember when Libya and Syria were going on, I was getting like emails and notifications of like decapitated bodies. And like, I was just amazed at the influx of images that we were getting from these wars. And it seemed to mean nothing. It was almost like it had become so normalized or we had become so desensitized to it that, you know, you'd flip your down your news feed on social media or check your email and it's, you know, holiday sales, this, that next thing is a thing about Libya. And you, you, it's hard to uh, take all of this in. And, and I think part of what I get out of this book is like, we really, I think, need to be thinking about how we're trying to represent these events and then whether an over-representation of these events actually has the, you know, the unintended consequence of sort of paralyzing us, leaving us maybe unable to properly memorialize or properly uh, deal with our trauma because we're just bombarded with too much. 
Is that, I mean, is, do you think that that's, is, is that some of what you, and I'm sorry for just sort of rambling, but I, I'm, I'm trying to also work out some of my own thoughts while I'm, while I'm, uh, examining this book. And, and that's a lot of what I had, what I thought about as you were, you know, as I was reading through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I do write a little bit about that. Well, or maybe a lot about it. Um, yeah. One of the issues I, or thought structures I got interested in was this, uh, transformation or this collapse of the ethical into the virtual that that when we are so oversaturated with with this traumatic imagery it becomes something we're numb to and it becomes almost a kind of um a kind of um just a surface another surface it's it's virtualized and it it and so yeah i think that that is a big problem in our in our current world of oversaturation of images and sound you know the noise the constant noise and that yeah it's true since i re- since i wrote the book i i think you know we're we're so much more attached to our devices and and we're so much more constantly engaged in what's often a very superficial perusal of information and and images but but could be on some very um serious topics and so yes i think it's it's a big problem it's you know we're it's a very different era than say the vietnam war when when images of actual fighting were on television screens and everybody was watching the same television screen and now we don't even really see i mean yeah we see some of it in fact i did a piece um also in the same era of writing the book which was where i found a a a piece of video footage surveillance footage of um from an apache helicopter uh in iraq and um they're shooting people on this there's some you see these figures it's infra you know kind of uh infrared photography it's nighttime see them these figures running and getting shot you see some hiding under vehicles and they just blow up the this parked truck and uh was a very small piece of footage very low resolution and it disappeared from the internet but i managed to download it and i processed the the videos so that you see it several times first in its original form but as it gets processed through you know various uh video techniques it it really starts looking like a like a game and i was very interested in uh how yeah that's a very to me a very dangerous blurring of of borders between these profoundly ethical questions that our politics and our body politic needs to grapple with and and a virtualization that just removes us from any 
feeling or or, identif- or identification. And that didn't, it's not as if that began overnight. I mean, in the book, you're very clear. I, I was going to ask you if you could talk about the 20th century as the century of media and war. So this sort of convergence. I mean, at the same time, I was thinking of Bernard Steigler's work as I was reading some of yours as well. He makes the point that at the same time that Hollywood was developing its first major studios, Ford was developing its first major assembly line. So it's like this industrialization of information and warfare. I was also went back and read a little bit of uh, Marinetti's uh, work from the Futurist Manifesto. It's like really like the, seems to me to be like some of the seeds of obviously led to the fascist manifesto and so on, but this this obsession with technology and the role that technology plays. Um, but if, if you could sort of talk about the 20th century as the century of media yeah. and war. Well, that was something I was really riffing off of uh, Paul Virilio, who writes about that. And, um, and, I, and I tried to kind of push it a little further in a direction that I was working with, but that these the technologies of observation, this is what Virilio says, the technologies of, of observation are, are the same as the technologies of destruction. And so you have really at the heart of how technology develops as being something that is um, really, it has been a kind of simultaneous development of how we entertain ourselves or inform ourselves that you know these media technologies were were designed to to be of use in warfare and starting with world war one so with world war one was when um, they started illuminating the battlefield if we could bring out these giant lights and be able to illuminate the battlefield and so, you know, and, and so light is certainly part of these, these technologies. Uh, and that really uh, was kind of a very startling connection for me to make. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing. Yeah, and you can relate it to Ford, you know, and how, how these technologies uh, there's there's a pernicious core in them, and it doesn't mean that okay. So because we watch images, we're we're engaging in warfare. But that irony, or that and it's beyond an irony, you know, it's a real technological phenomenon. Is is something I think uh, that that opens up a lot of questions. You know, and I think I also I wrote about a little bit about. Uh, um, Heidegger also wrote about this, um, and he talked about communication. Okay, now I'd have to like actually look at it and see what it says. Okay, this part you cut, um, where I can't remember <laughs> what. <laughs> but um, um, but these, uh, but just you know, where you think of um, how like one of the things that Paul Virilio talks about a lot is and writes a lot about is speed. And this, uh, so expediting, um, you know, so so technologies of observation are very important to expediting warfare, you know, the drone warfare, 
you know, you can do this kind of surveillance and, and it, and then it starts to substitute also from the actual presence, you know, being in, in a battlefield. And that too is a virtualization. You know, you probably know more than I do about, uh, you know, the, there's some, this very latent trauma that, that happens to drone operators. You know, they're in their suburban enclaves going into some, you know, surveillance center operating these drones and, you know, maybe going bowling after work. And, and um, so on one level, very removed, then on another level, uh, where does that go? Where does, where does that uh, responsibility and that um, action? And even more jarring to me would be a drone operator because you're you're absolutely right. The studies show that drone operators have the same, if not a higher, suicide rate than Sergio and I, who are in the infantry. Sergio was a scout sniper; I was a machine gunner. We got back from the war, and we would think to ourselves, "Ah, nobody's dealt with the kind of stuff we've dealt with." But at least from this war. But no, it, it's untrue. I mean, the the studies that have come out show that these drone operators have an even higher suicide rate than our people do in the infantry. To me, what would be even more jarring than coming home and going bowling would be to come home from that job, walk inside to see your children playing a video game that on the screen represents precisely what you just came back from. So for me, that seems even maybe more likely than this person coming home and going bowling. I, I do get your point, but I think you know, coming home and maybe walking into their living room and seeing their son or daughter playing a video game that is an almost exact replica of what they just left at their workplace to me, would be even more jarring. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's a much better example of, I think, what the implications are. Or just coming back to a family and, and having dinner and everything's normal and how was your day, honey? And, and what did you do at the office? Right. I mean, do you even talk about it? Do you even say what you did at the office? Yeah, yeah. And never have any connection with uh, the people that you killed uh, there is no visceral like tactile smells or um, uh, sensations in your body are, are even different in that in that kind of a context what you recall you know what I recall from those traumatic experiences are things like smells certain sounds um, so yeah I've, I've, I've thought a lot about the kind of experience that someone who a drone operator might might deal with how about this? You know, even um, in that, I was talking about that Apache helicopter clip that I manipulated. In that, you know, there's there's also a, the the recording of the operators in the in the helicopter, yeah. and it's just target practice. It's just got them. You know, they're just they're they're amped up and also very removed even though much obviously much closer in than a drone operator but the technology is so efficient now you know there you are in the dark of night you can see it all you can just get that target it looks like a game you can't really see details of an actual human being you know so yeah i think it's it's really it is jarring how about man thinking, this was something I pulled out of that, that first chapter that I really liked that you had to say, and that is 
uh, power and technology as a way to escape finitude, but that man thinking of himself as this sort of quantifiable power. This is something that Sergio and I have talked a lot about recently, even separate from what we're talking about, but in the political realm, you know, we do political organizing work and it, there's this tendency of some of our friends on the left to sort of want to quantify all of our needs and desires and that they can be represented through polling numbers and statistics and all the rest. Do you, is there a connection between those two things or am I sort of going off somewhere else? No, that's an interesting, that's an interesting um, analogy. So you're asking how do we quantify power or how do we quantify um tell me tell me again what you're asking that in the in the first chapter you had made the point that that sort of memory is strangled in the pursuit of power and that man is sort of thinking of himself in this context as a quantifiable power that like technology allows us to sort of quantify the kind of power that we have yeah yeah i think in that if i'm not mistaken <laughs> Um, but I think I was also, that was a piece that was um, drawing on um, something that um, Bataille had written after the dropping of the atom bomb. And um, this idea that, yeah, you can kind of quantify power, you can come up with these numbers of... Um, what did a war cost, you know, how much territory was gained or how many casualties or, you know, whatever. And that, you know, there is a quantifying of, um, of power that I think on some level also diminishes the real implications of it. So that becomes, um, you know, the stock market of, um, of thinking that there is a quantification, you know, this, as though it's even possible. Uh, you know, what something else I wrote about in the chapter about Shoah was um, this idea of in the Warsaw ghetto, um, I think it was 5,000 people a day dying. And how these are numbers we can sometimes, and, and now of course we're in it with COVID. And um, I think like many of us, I read the number every day, how many new cases and how many deaths and and how, how inadequate that is, how inadequate. And just maybe that's what you're saying in terms of political organizing, you know, how how do we how do we make that adequate you know because for the left of course the goal is to um improve people's lives so how do we how do we take this quantification in in our overwhelmingly large unwieldy realms of human activity and and make that relevant and make that make that valuable but I think power is also used to obliterate the real, and those those numbers can can actually obliterate the the real impl implication or 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 a more um, effective representation. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that a lot in the context of the pandemic. In order to 
sort of properly convey the trauma that's been experienced by people. I was working on a piece that instead of focusing on the numbers of dead or the statistics or the numbers of sick people, I had found a, a specific story from San Antonio, Texas, of a seven-year-old who lost his mother last year and then just lost his father and then just lost his grandfather who was then taking care of him after his mother and father had died. All three had died of COVID. It seems to me that a deep dive examination of that young man's or young boy's life and what that person is experiencing in their whole like circle of people in that social network and their family network would be perhaps a more accurate way to to portray what's happened over the last 12 months than to try and think of the whole thing or to try and put it into like a box. And I've, I've been thinking of that, you know, it seems to me that something like that makes more sense. I think so too. I think, uh, I think we have on some level exhausted these grand narratives that try to heroicize wars or, or, or all kinds of tragic events that become part of inscribed in history. Um, and that the grand narrative narratives are very distorting to the, the, actual experienced um event that is that is wholly singular you know for that child yes there are other children who've experienced something maybe similar but that child has a singular experience that you can't possibly slot into the into this grand narrative and as far as grand narratives are concerned, you mentioned, I, I know you're in that por- portion of the book, I think you're, you're working off of Nietzsche's work, but this, the role of the state in sort of generating these grand narratives and this drive of the state at the time when it's deteriorating to launch these big wars, to try and like reinvigorate itself, to try and like find a new mission for itself. Uh, it, it's interesting to me that there's this connection between uh, grand narratives, the state, how we relate to these things today, because it seems in today's culture, uh, and I don't want to go too, I don't want to ramble too much on this, but I do think that it's been hard to try and find narratives that uh, will stretch across different uh, geographies, different uh, constituencies, different people that we might be past that period of grand narratives. Like I've been thinking lately about this inability to get anyone on the same page. So like you were saying in Vietnam and even tying back to numbers, like they were using the body count in Vietnam, you know, so they're even then trying to quantify victory by like 20 dead GIs, 2000 dead Viet Cong, et cetera. Um, But the inability for the state or any entity in our society today uh, to create a narrative that can sort of push large numbers of the population into one direction, you know? So even with the Trump phenomenon or all of this, it's, it seems so fragmented today. I mean, as part of the, one of the points you're making is that maybe this period of grand narratives could be coming to a close. Uh, yeah, I, I do mention that. And I didn't, I haven't even, I wouldn't say that's an original thought. I think I, um, at one point I was, uh, writing a little bit about, um, Jean-Luc Nancy, the French philosopher, and he writes about that, the, the end of, of a kind of narrative. Um, 
yeah, I, I came up with this term, uh, and like many things, maybe other people did as well. But when I was when I was writing that book of um, homeland senility, um, that uh, now I'm forgetting the name of the actual department, homeland security. What is it? Department yeah, of okay. Homeland Security. Yeah. So I um, was interested in this notion of homeland senility uh because i think you're right that that this idea of a kind of national narrative is is extremely fractured and now of course you know what we see happening with qAnon and this kind of wildly distorted you know viral conspiracies that um are getting legitimized you know in our in the very core of our politics it's um it's a frightening situation um i would say but i think you know it also goes back to what you were talking about the reason i was interested in this idea of homeland senility is that this oversaturation of images you know this kind of way at, and now much more than when i wrote the book constant distraction clicking on this clicking on that you know never really getting into the deep read you know i think in in many cases um that that resembles senility more than it resembles say youth culture so you know youth culture has been associated with social media and our, our kind of you know visual culture but it really resembles to me something more akin to senility where a thought doesn't ever quite coalesce you know it the fragmentation is constantly conflating one thing with another and so uh, yeah how do you how do you really maintain critical faculties under under those conditions so that was another way i was um you know de deconstructing this notion of memory and and um the the damage that um can be you could you could look at it as being something that's that has is a is a function of trauma on the national level and maybe a kind of intentional um destruction um you know got got a little too drunk and hung over on power right and that killed some of the brain cells um so yeah i think on on the national level these are these are big questions and and are you sort of i felt like it's maybe pushing in the direction of like that this could be the end of life here in the United States, that in fact, like as the, as our nation state empire, our project here, I know there's all kinds of narratives and books that have been written in the last 10 years about this, like the end of us empire, the end of hegemony, all this stuff. But the parallels between an aging person and an aging nation an aging civilization, it seems like it goes well beyond just American empire that in fact, in the context of ecological devastation and climate change that we're, we are forced to grip 
grapple with this question of civilization and where we're headed and if this could very well be the end. And I think, again, this bombardment of information from the news media and so on, like, at least it is now getting out there, you know, whereas 10 years ago, I would complain that my environmentalist friends and my friends who are climate scientists were like, man, I really wish people would talk about this. Now, I can't find someone who won't tell me, yeah, we're screwed. You know, it's over with. It's like, that's like the, the, the sense that I get now from people who are conscious about that issue is is that sort of something that you're you didn't explicitly bring that up or question that but is that something you're kind of like urging the reader to think about well you know it's interesting i think with that writing i wasn't so much um but climate is an issue that is very dear to my heart and this climate catastrophe and emergency that we're in so it there's certainly many ways you could find connections to that and to um yeah the implications of of what we are driving ourselves to you know to what end Mm -hmm. to what end you know we shouldn't be driving ourselves to an end (laughs) yeah in uh in in a more healthy uh, scenario, um, but I think that existential threat is um, is also a, a very um, visceral, tr- ongoing trauma. I think that is becoming more and more uh, apparent, and I'm especially very. Um, kind of heart sick about younger people um, and how this is, I think, landing in, in their, in their views of a future. Uh, But I, I, I mean, I, I like to think there's like a little tiny pinhole of optimism in, in the book too. And I, I try to maintain a little pinhole of optimism in general, um, also through political activism and through some real embrace of possibility to to move to overcome some of this, you know, whether we can or not, I, I think is is, you know, these are real questions. I know when I was younger and I would talk about these things, I was always kind of accused of being, you know, very, um, I don't know if anybody actually said histrionic, but that's probably what they meant. And, um, you know, and now I think it's, you know, you hear it from the most mainstream halls of politics and from countless scientific um, perspectives. So, uh, but yeah, and I think this, this also, I mean, yeah, you could, you could say in the book there is um, a discussion of um, this the limits of power, like how how we how we um, the human um, strives to have so much power. It's it's the power to destroy ourselves. That that once power, you know, it is the kind of a Doctor Strange love worldview of um you know where and you see that now i mean i think you know 
it's I've, I've felt that the current manifestation of the Republican Party, you know, that so, you know, that it's, it, it feels like a death cult, you know, where there's no room for empathy to, to help people, you know, or to, or to acknowledge a deadly virus or to, you know, and, and so that's a, you know, the, the perversion of um, self-destruction that underlies, I think, so much of this, this contemporary moment is, is something not new, but, but, you know, it has, it, it's reached real planetary levels. I mean, I think probably in the Cold War area, era, you know, there was also a similar feeling that because nu nuclear destruction could absolutely destroy civilization. But the idea that we've we've set off feedback loops, you know, that's kind of this strange, we've just set in motion something that will destroy us without even having to pull the trigger is a, is a new phenomenon to, to actually try to um, understand or, or articulate. And I know there's somewhere in the book, I'm not sure if you're quoting someone else or if you made this point yourself, but that you mentioned that we, that humanity has the ability to destroy ourselves and that we can, in fact, in that process, actually aesthetically enjoy it. That there's like, that, that like one of the problems is that we might develop ways to aesthetically actually enjoy this destruction. Can you, can you well, talk you about Well, you mentioned the, the futurists. Yeah. I think, you know, so there's, there's that image of the futurists where they're kind of talking about the battlefield lighting up like like flowers yeah. in a field so yes i think that and and uh i wrote about you know i started looking into um images the atom bomb because i i was um it was for a um a video piece i was doing and um and i discovered this bizarre fetishized world of um atom bomb images online there are these networks that are just obsessed with it and it is it's it's a beautiful image it's a sublime magnificent thing you know we create a, it's you set off this cloud into the sky so yes i think that that the aestheticizing of um destruction and of of um calamity is um i think it's you know that's that's always been there you know i think there's you know people like love watching a car crash you know or um in a movie um but i think it's it's it it's amplified you know when we're so saturated by imagery and where you know you can you just can go find any image you want you can you can and then you can find the communities that surround these images and talk about them and so uh yeah i think the aestheticizing is um is something that will continue will continue to i think really be um be more explosive more viral more um 
present. And it's a, it's a fine line, I think, between a kind of fetish and an aesthetic, you know, especially, you know, when I think of some of the really hideous um, kind of um, QAnon theor theories, you know, that really draw directly off of Nazi propaganda, this blood libel, you know, so the Nazis said the Jews were killing babies and drinking their blood. So QAnon's QAnon, you know, got much smarter. You don't have to just target the Jews. You can target all the liberals, all of Hollywood. You can just target half half the population. And um, but this obsession with it is is verges on a kind of aestheticizing. The the obsession with pedophilia as well. What I found amazing was this influx of articles and information and like emails and even good people I know who are getting a hold of me and being like, Hey Vince, is there really a, a global pedophile? And I'm going, Oh my goodness. Like you, and the way that the Epstein story was used to sort of manifest those narratives and then in conjunction yeah. with the QAnon stuff. And you really, I feel like we're living in a period today where you have to be hyper disciplined in terms of what it is you're consuming and how you're consuming it. Oh, yeah. No, and I think the reach, it's true. The reach of all of that is way beyond any kind of conventional political border. Uh, it has really penetrated the New Age um, yeah. kind of community, you know, the anti-vax community and the QAnon, and then you've got suburban suburban housewives who think yeah pedophilia that's bad so we got to save the children so all of the way that this is um reaching such uh such strange bedfellows but uh i read a very interesting piece recently that was comparing the whole QAnon phenomenon to a gaming environment because the way QAnon functions is it drops clues and so people are constantly decoding, you know, these these gibberish letters that that don't say anything, but then they mean something, you know, you can. And so that how that addicts, addicts people into the environment and keeps them. Keeps them engaged. And so that's also a very interesting piece of um, how this thing is, is functioning. How about the role of photography in this context? Yeah, well, photography, yeah, I think I write about that. You know, yeah. like Susan Sontag, I think, wrote something about, in her book on photography, wrote how a photograph is not the thing itself. You know, it's so, and even, you know, you have a whole history of war photography where things were moved around, bodies were moved, you know, things were construct. these images were constructed. And I think that's something, that's a whole other story, you know, of how photography has always been um, um, a facsimile it's it's in, in even what we've called documentary material when I, I teach and and when I'm teaching documentary and I I also make documentaries I um I think it's always upsetting sometimes to the students when I 
say nothing's objective nothing you you can't and just because you make a documentary and you call it a documentary that's not objective you've made so many decisions you've cut this out you've cut that together you've drawn associations you've you know you're there it's there is no um objectivity so so with that in mind then you know we're we're searching for other ways of um identifying or or understanding truth and truths and and it's very complicated um but photography has always and and of course now you know the deep fake what you can do with photography or let alone video moving image is astounding it's just incredible i wanted to ask you about that because i just read an article in the guardian a few weeks ago that you know had proposed that the deep fake videos were going to be the sort of new problem that we'll face in the in the next you know coming years i think they said within four or five years it'll be so detailed and complex that people will not be able to tell the difference at all what to me the the profound implications for that i mean all the way to it makes me question how much work i should do in the digital realm as much as we do a ton of stuff in the digital realm i think are we moving into a period where if you don't see someone face to face if you don't have a personal connection that it's going to be virtually impossible to uh believe anything i mean that doesn't see it it doesn't seem that we can run a highly complex, densely populated society in that kind of a context. If we lived in like small hunter-gatherer societies, it seems clear that we say with the level of technology we have today, yes, okay, we could like parse out, is Joan BSing us with this video? Who knows when that video was shot? We can kind of account for it. But in a world where you can't account for any of that, the implications for, to me are, are profoundly scary. Yeah, I think, I think it'll it will be an ongoing problem. I mean, think of what you can do in a political ad, you, what you can make people say that will be identical to, you know, and I've seen, I've seen um, demos of this stuff where based on, you know, a single photograph, you can create moving image, you can create the exact sound of someone's voice and so the ability to destroy and slander your opponent will reach such new levels. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's highly dangerous, uh, and I think it will be used over and over to um, to manipulate information, to destroy character, to uh, undermine truths of all kinds and even maybe our understanding of ourselves in other words if you log on to the internet and you start to see video after video of Joan Grossman giving speeches that you didn't give and making statements that you didn't say it seems to me that even sort outside of the political collective realm subjectively like what is this going to do to us psychologically if we start to see yeah. ourselves in a very real way digitally saying and sounding just like ourselves but it's not us yeah i um, i can't even imagine how that how that would feel uh but i think that that's that kind of thing is is very likely uh it's going to be a very powerful tool governments will use it 
Yeah. I mean, the kind of psyops um, that we have now will be nothing compared to what you can do in a in a deep fake environment and um you know how you can how one government can bring another government down uh, all of those things can be um really cataclysmic but you're right i think even on a per, on a in the private realm yeah how do you how do you maintain yeah some semblance of one's own being uh it's yeah it's it's uh yeah that's that's a big one i think yeah i would assume this is a problem a lot of celebrities already deal with in other words if you're a well-known person who when you go to the store you see a picture of yourself and your wife uh like the most unflattering picture that someone could find like seeing those things and then seeing yourself on tv that has to i mean you know i'm know some people who have had some success doing things and it seems that the that constant bombardment of of images of yourself is not at all healthy I mean, it's not only not at all healthy but it it really disrupts your state of being and and thinking of who you're who you are and what are the influences going into thinking uh you know who you are i wanted to um i wanted to ask you also about this concept of the digital archive and I don't know if I understood that portion of the book correctly, but I, I definitely wanted to ask if, if sort of you make the point that it both destroys and creates history. Today, we don't have laws written on stone tablets. We're, you know, we're even creating less hard copy books. Like people are publishing books straight to Kindle. Um, we no longer make DVDs or movies. They just go straight digital. All of this is like predicated on the belief that this, superstructure of technology will continue forever. I, I, you don't explicitly say this, but what I was thinking about when I was reading that portion of the book was like, we, it seems to me we live in a time where the digital archive can also sort of disappear. Or if we, yeah, like exactly. if we, if we yeah. have like an infrastructure failure, if people decide to delete this portion of history, it's not like there's going to be too many hard copies to like make up the gap. Exactly. Yeah. I think that is true. And you can, and just like the deep fake, we, you can easily manipulate digital records. Um, and when there is no hard copy, uh, it's, it's, yeah, I, I think. And then there's the whole problem. I, I went to a talk a couple of years ago with somebody from the Smithsonian and um, an archivist, and he was talking about how, you know, you've got all of this, um, all of these, records or artworks or films or images whatever you know all of this digital material that was made on technology that became obsolete you know think of something like the old floppy disks you know all these things that um and i'm sure we all own some material that we can't even play um or or access and um and then on top of that it degrades uh you know, I, I've known people who are avid music collectors and they put everything on CD, you know, and then 10 years later, their CDs are all degraded. It turned out not to be a stable format. So, yeah, I, I think we're, we don't quite understand where all of that is going um, and what is lost without those analog artifacts. 
you know, even, you know, they, they, you know, they send out these space cap time capsules, you know, they leave on the moon and, and I think they've left some digital, you know, artifacts like a CD-ROM disc or something, you know, like that ended up in some, one of these things. And it's like, who, who, who's going to play that? And, you know, at least if you leave a book and some alien finds it or some future space traveler finds it, it's something you can see and touch. And, um, and so how can you, yeah, there's a lot of danger in, um, losing all of that body of knowledge, memory. Um, yeah. Where, where does it go? Where is it safely stored? Let me ask you this, Joan, because it seems to me that there's a lot of people who want to go back. So you make some points about technology in the book and our relationship to nature. So I have friends who are I mean, some of the environmentalists I respect the most because they're the ones locking on to anything from tractors to pipelines to trying to stop the destruction of old-growth old forests or, or save these species that no one else gives a shit about. And, you know, these are people I tremendously, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, and we've worked with them over the years. I consider them friends and allies and all the rest. But at the same time, it worries me that many of them will talk to me about sort of returning to sort of a hunter-gatherer society. I think there's maybe objective reasons why that's not feasible with 7.8 billion people on the planet. But let's say that it is. Why? What do you think about that? And like, what? It seems to me that there is no going back, but that we also can't allow technology to be the driving force of where we're going. That like. We have to find a way to, to live with it and to maybe harness some of that energy and find a balance because we're not going back to hunter-gatherer society. At the same time, I don't think anyone wants to live in the Black Mirror uh, TV show. You know, I don't know if you've seen that show at, at yes. all, but you yeah. know, and we're, in many of those episodes, it's actually like we're already there to some degree. But I yeah. think that there's a lot of that that people go, wait a minute, I don't want to go there but I'm also not willing to maybe go back and even if we could go back, which I don't think is possible. What, what do you sort of make of that? Yeah, I don't, I don't think we can go back. There's no going back. Um, there's going forward. You know, I, I'm, I'm always having these conversations with my friends on the left um, because I think in the last four years and especially in the last year, there was so much attention to this lament of, you know, this, this era. Um, and I'm, I like to challenge them that the left needs to start envisioning a future in a very bold and um, beautiful way. Because if we're not fighting for something, if we're only fighting against, that's, that's not adequate. And if we're, and if, and I think these kind of ideas of going back, I think is not, is not possible. I don't, I don't really abide by that, but I do think, uh, we do have a crisis of envisioning a future, uh, that really can be manifest in, in any, um, with with real potential something that has real potential um and something you know it's something i struggle with but it's something you know, it's also something i really yearn for uh that that space to really be 
getting beyond all of the triage that needs to happen, you know, everything from, you know, a living wage to um, zero carbon, you know, which, you know, which is really kind of just ameliorating damage done. But where do we, you know, how do we build this thing that is actually, you know, what, what are, you know, how, how do we really envision our species thriving um, in a way, you know, because I think we do have a crisis right now. I think, and it, it's something I would say, I don't know if it's global, that crisis. I, I taught in China the last couple of years and in, um, in the summers. And it's been kind of amazing to be in China and realize there seems to be such a greater level of optimism and sense that life is getting better. And, and data shows this, you know, the kinds of studies that have gone on. And that was actually a very startling realization that, um, to, to, to kind of to realize, to face that, especially here in the United States, you know, those, those um, feelings are very dampened right now. You know, optimism or life is getting better, you know, that there's all this possibility. I mean, I, I had a conversation with uh, a young uh, woman architect in China, and she said to me, there's never been a better time to be a young person in China. And, uh, and, you know, it was just very kind of, it was very energizing actually to hear that. And, uh, and, you know, she's doing this incredible, brilliant, modern architecture. That's really, you know, very innovative, doing very interesting things. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think it's a matter of going back. I think it's a matter of moving into a future that we can really imagine and and articulate and and strive for with some some real sense of purpose. You know, not it, you know, I've also I've also written about utopia. That's another thing that interests me. Um kind of the the way utopia actually comes out of catastrophe. Um, and I don't think utopia is adequate either, um, but I think it provides a certain framework um, that that has been useful for, for various ways of thinking and conceiving. But, uh, but yeah, that's something I do think about a lot. You know, how do we, how do we start building that that future that vision your point about uh china is so important here at the community center in which we're located right now we have a, a friend who teaches at the art institute of chicago she brings down her classes every semester to do a little thing here in the community center and sergio and i give a presentation to them and just kind of have a conversation with them kind of projects they're working on talking to them about the importance of having actual physical spaces like the one in which we're in right now um, I'm 36 years old. Sergio's 36 years old. We were both born in 1984. Sergio left, uh, the former Soviet Union when he was 14 years old, ends up in the United States in another sort of dying empire. 
Uh, I think those of us who were born in that time, I have this conversation with my friends from the 68 generation all the time because they're like, there was so much optimism and hope and we were out there and we thought it was like right on the verge of major change. And in many ways there were great changes, you know, um, things that we still benefit from today from that, from that generation. I don't think that should be downplayed at all. Um, but our generation, on the other hand, have, have grown up in this context of, of constant decline, you know, and where we live here in Northwest Indiana, and you're an originally a, a Hoosier, in this part of the state in Northwest Indiana, and you know, throughout the Rust Belt and the Midwest, we've just been devastated over the last 40 years. And now add on top of that, the Trump stuff post 2008, uh, the racial violence and, 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 and police violence and militarization and opioid addiction and you just go on down the list that we, and you know, we spend our days organizing. Like the reason we opened this space was for cultural social reasons, but primarily as a hub for community organizing. So during the day we knock doors, organize events, meetings, whatever it is that we're doing. And then at night, you know, sort of sit there in a state of despair about how we're not doing enough or whatever we're doing isn't as effective as we want it to be. Um, it does seem like there's a big generational difference, and I think geography plays a big role too. So class, race, geography, all of these things playing, I think, a significant role in how uh, a lot of young Americans are growing up and, and looking at the situation, and they don't obviously have the same view as this, the young people that we speak to. Uh, also, who from the Art Institute were coming from China, you know, students, exchange students, and so on, who would share their experiences with us, and then they would look around Michigan City, Indiana, after they took the train down from the from Chicago, and they're going, my God, this looks like a Mad Max world out here. I mean, they really, you know, when they see these sort of deindustrialized Rust Belt towns like the one in which we live, it's for them very, it's a very jarring experience for them to see this, you know. Well, it's not the America they've seen on TV or in movies, you know, and, and uh, you know, and sometimes I feel in America right now we're like the former Soviet Union, which was told you, you're, this is the best culture in the world. You know, this is, this is, this, we're not that decadent Western world out there, consumerist, capitalist, um, you know, this is the best. And then the wall came down and people went, wait a second, <laughs> this isn't so great. We, we didn't have it so great after all. So, and I think in America too, you know, you see how brainwashed that ideology, you know, that ideology can, how brainwashed people are with that ideology to the point where they can't even envision that healthcare could be a right, you know, that they actually, and that that actually exists. They can't even quite believe it, you know, but they're not America. That's why it exists. It exists because that, that we're, we're better than that, you know, that, and it's become this bizarre double speak of um self self praise you know being we're the best you know we can't we can't have those things because we're we're that we're not though we're not sweden we're not right. you know, um right. we're somehow better than that but we can't have the the nice things they have um so it's it's been an interesting it's interesting to see america become that you know it's um it's a strange phenomenon, you know, we're, we're the wealthiest, yes, and we're the most powerful, but people are 
are just being squeezed to smithereens. The fact that people can't have a living wage or health care or college education without mountains of debt, that all of this has become normalized as some kind of, um, this is how we do it in America, because we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. I was just about to say what's most insidious about it, in my view, is that we've taken on, it's sort of been valorized. So now our suffering and oppression have been like, we're exceptional because we can endure such oppression here. So it's no longer like we're exceptional because we're doing things better. It's like, oh no, we're exceptional because in the United States, that's just how it is. We're tough. If you don't have healthcare too bad. And that's what makes us exceptional is our exceptional levels of oppression. That, that, and it is also, you know, it's, it's the worst of um, a kind of cowboy mentality that if you're not, if you don't have those things, it's because you just weren't tough and strong enough to get them, you know? So, so that, that's also this idea that, you know, that mythology plays, plays into this idea of, okay, you're either a winner or you're a loser. And I think the Trump era just reinforced that ad nauseum. And, um, so all of those things that are, um, you know, just eroding a kind of, well, I mean, it's so anti-intellectual on one level, but it's, it's also just um, making the, our, our politics very vulnerable to the phenomenon, phenomena of QAnon or, or, or all kinds of um, manipulations. It's one of our biggest challenges and one of the most heartbreaking things that we encounter organizing where we're organizing is that we often meet people who have been beat down by this system uh, and will tell us that they 100% deserved it because they made a mistake when they were 27 years old and didn't finish their school or didn't pay off a loan one month. And it's like, you know what? I'm the one who fucked up. I'm the one who's got to deal with this. Oh, man. that the, it's, yeah. it's hard to even transition in that in the moment of the conversation because you it hits you immediately that this person has internalized this to such a degree that they almost wholly blame themselves for the situation and that is that's truly heartbreaking it's always it's also i think a sign of just how powerful the the systems of propaganda are in this in this country yeah um as far as alternatives are concerned and i agree with you this is another complaint sergio and i have for our left friends you can't just be against everything we have to have a positive viable vision for the future, something people can get excited and feel like they have a part in. Um, do you think part of that is a sort of challenge of, well, I guess two questions. One is, do you think that's a lack of imagination? And how much is that sort of lack of imagination tied to our sort of uh, restraints of language? So in other words, like we work with the Democratic Socialists of America because they're the largest left group in the country and it allows us to connect with people throughout the region throughout the state it makes a lot of sense for us now we also do local organizing efforts that don't have any of that language attached to it but I guess I wonder like is there do you think it makes sense to use the concepts of like socialism communism these types of things or should we move beyond that is there a moving beyond that uh I think it's I think unfortunately the language is is problematic uh you know Noam Chomsky has written about um, the way that 
the anything dealing with com anything that rang of communism or socialism had became so um maligned in the media in the halls of you know in the capitalist realms of power that it's it's a problem you know i i wish bernie had run as a social democrat i think that would have been a more i mean i agree i i think it would have it would have saved the conversation i had many many times when people said well he's a socialist and i would say well what do you mean by that you know that yeah, yeah. opens that whole conversation because just the word is so triggering that to have the conversation beyond the word is is um we don't have the hours in the day to do that um yeah. with everybody who needs to have that conversation so unfortunately yes and on the same you know at the same same breath i would say bernie didn't have to run as i mean and i don't think bernie runs around saying i'm a socialist i'm a socialist i think it's you know he identified early on in his political life as as a socialist but i don't believe by and large he wanted to nationalize all means of production right right um yeah maybe the utilities that makes sense you know or there's certain yeah nationalized health care but i think the opportunities for, for entrepreneurship i i think actually that's one where place where the left could have expanded its discourse you know to to america uh in a way that would be i think productive that um it's not just that say a green new deal will create millions of good paying jobs the green new deal will open up tremendous avenues of entrepreneurship you know the things that are at sort of the heart and soul of american identity right that i can come up with my idea i can pursue it i can i can you know get rewarded for it yeah um I, I, yeah, so I think, yeah, I think we've had some problems with language. That all makes yeah. a lot of sense uh, to me because these are things that we heard from other people and they were the same challenges and conversations that we had with, with the Bernie phenomenon. And I heard it from people who were very, you know, smart. I mean, it wasn't just like yeah. somebody who doesn't get it. You yeah. know, it's, it's the, yeah. I, yeah, I think we need new languages. I like the word progressive. I think it, it to me, speaks to the future. I think it, it's the term I like to use um, when I talk about my political identity. Yeah. No, it makes sense. We just had a conversation with a great historian, Harvey J.K., who, oh, entrepreneurship. That's what I was going to get to. Um, Harvey J.K., who's a great historian out of the University of Madison, uh, University of uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Um, excellent historian of American history and so forth. But he's he was making the same arguments and, and through the campaign trying to really encourage the Bernie folks because he has connections at that sort of level of politics was like really trying to encourage them to, to drop the socialist language and take on the social democratic language and instead of pulling from Norway and Sweden and et cetera, to pull from American history 
that would maybe resonate with people more here, that there is a social democratic tradition here, you know, stretching from MLK to FDR to Thomas Paine and, and beyond. And, and I, I do think that that would have been useful. When you brought up entrepreneurship, I was reminded of a interview that we recently did, uh, not recently now, many months ago with uh, Michael Hart, uh, who had wrote a book with Tony Negri called Assembly. And in their book Assembly, he's talking about like, re-examining this concept of entrepreneurialism and that we should use it, that the left should employ it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar that he was also sort of like examining that, that concept, but I think it's interesting that you bring this up as well because even locally, you know, one of the frustrations that Sergio and I have had in our organizing efforts is that oftentimes the people in the city who are like out there hustling, like getting projects done and like making stuff happen are people who have that kind of entrepreneurial spirit. And not all of them come from middle class or upper class backgrounds. I mean, I'm talking like working class people who are like, I don't want to work a nine to five bullshit job. I don't want to be stuck in this small town in Indiana doing nothing interesting. How am I going to make my community a little better? How am I going to like benefit my own life and sort of create something interesting to do? You know, it's like, there's nobody else that's going to come from the outside to do it for us here. And to the extent that they will, it'll be a gentrification process. It won't be like some organic from the bottom up democratic, like cultural process that people have some kind of input in. I think it's really, really interesting what you say about, about entrepreneurialism, because it also seems one of the challenges we face with our socialist friends who I think are relying on the state to do so much is that it is in sort of contrast to this American tradition, or at least the ideology that we've been sort of filled with, especially in, in my lifetime, you know, since the Reagan era and this neoliberal era, that people have really been told, you know, the state is bad. Now, people are starting to, I think, re-examine that, younger generations, Bernie supporters. But there's also this other part of, I think, that entrepreneurialism that we can tap into that you're mentioning that Americans already have this sense of like, well, why can't we do it ourselves? I think we see some of that with like mutual aid uh, efforts, for instance. I think people jump to that because it's right in line with this American tradition of like, we're not going to wait for the government. We're going to get together with our neighbors, our friends, and our family, and we're going to make this thing happen right now. And I think there's some, some benefit to that, that the left sometimes poo-poos too much, you know. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think so. Too. I wasn't aware of the other work you were talking about. I but I feel like, you know, also one of the ways we're, we're brainwashed in this country is to think, okay, deregulation is good, right? Because that unleashes all this ability for innovation and entrepreneurship. But we don't have deregulation. We have regulation that benefits the corporate sector and has actually um, squashed um, entrepreneurial resources. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, you know, so I think when you talk about language, it's on so many levels that the discourse is so distorted. Uh, you know, if corporations weren't allowed to evade so many taxes and operate on a level where they can, um, completely monopolize markets and then pay ridiculously low wages, you would have a, a different environment for, for innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, so, you know, I think there's so many things that need to be evaluated in terms of how we, 
how we talk about it and and I do think on the left, yeah, I I believe very, very strongly in, in the common good. And there are things that we do have to support in the common good, right? If we don't build, if we don't have this, the, the government involved in building highways and bridges and having standards and whatever. Okay, so we all agree. How about, you know, clean water? Okay, so you can healthcare, I think. It's it's absurd in this day and age that that is is considered something rogue. Um, but I also I strongly believe people want to have the the resources, the space, the um, capacity to um, to have their own their own means of making a living, you know, and and. You know, I, I'd love to hear more about your community center at, at some point, but I mean, to have a, you know, I'm sure it's, it's really quite exciting and interesting, you know, to have a space where you can program and you can innovate and you can bring people together. And, you know, for some people, it's doing it on that level. And, and for other people, it's maybe, okay, coming up with something that, that a product, um, I think, unfortunately, you know, so much of what our financial world produces now has no common good to it. You know, financial mechanisms, you know, that are, that are designed to suck the wealth out of the general economy and just siphon it upward in a way that has been so destructive. You know, it, it creates no benefit other than the concentration of wealth for fewer and fewer people. Yeah. And, you know, you know, Bernie, of course, has talked for many years about how you tax financial transactions, you know, and you can, you can, you know, in that world of finance and, and how you can um, intervene on this obscene concentration of wealth. Uh, and, you know, to me, it's always amazing the people who are not benefiting from any of these tax laws that benefit the wealthy because another American myth is, oh, well, I'm going to be a gazillionaire one day. You know, that's just a matter of, you know, it's going to be the lottery. It's going to be whatever I'm going to be. And I don't want to pay a lot of taxes when I'm a gazillionaire and how, you know, utterly deluded that is. hundred percent. It's been the, the it, equally as frustrating as running into poor working class people who internalize that oppression is running into poor and working class people who believe they too one day will become, you know, elites or in the 1%. I was going to, wanted to ask you, because you were speaking before about examining that language and we're talking about examining it in the political realm. Something that I feel after reading your book, after reading some of Avital's work and other people is that it, it almost, it, First of all, as I said at the beginning of the interview, I thought it was a phenomenal book, made me think a lot. You said more in 104 pages than books I read with 404 pages. But I, that's also part of the problem. Like, I also read a book like yours and I go, oh, shit. I almost feel paralyzed for a couple days where I'm like, you have to rethink, like, how are you using these terms? What are those? What do those terms mean? Like, that I think you, I guess the question to you is, how do you keep yourself moving and sort of not become paralyzed with maybe uh, 
too much examination. Not that that's what you're doing in the book, but my reaction to it was maybe a little too much of like, oh God, you got to rethink how you use this term. You got to rethink what do you mean when you say this? All good. You should, I think, constantly be like thinking, reflecting, never like settling, you know, and being like, I think I understand this or I think I get this. It's like, I think it's good to always grapple with whatever it is and just never let yourself kind of off the hook. Something that uh, Avital talks about, which I enjoy. Um, but I wonder how you do that. You know, so even politically, it's like we do at some point maybe have to use a term or use a phrase and just kind of run with it. Does that mean, it doesn't mean we don't stop examining it, but it means at some point we do have to kind of like momentarily settle on some things just to move forward. Is that, do you find that difficult at all? Uh, you know, I think what's helped me through that process is teaching because in teaching, you don't take for granted that your students understand what you're talking about. And then I read something that students absorb 4% of what teachers say. So I realized, okay, you can also repeat things and say them a little differently. And uh, so I think it's teaching made me a more patient person to be able to parse these things um, with less of the sense of yeah, with less of a combative sense of, of, you know, that this, there's some kind of um, language war that we have to win, or there's some kind of um, better way to say things. I mean, I think anybody who engages in, in any human interaction or relationship or thought knows on some level that these are things, these are works in progress, our, our ability to articulate an idea or, or think something through. And, and it's, it has to constantly be refined. And I think politics also teaches us that. Yeah. Um, it's a long, it's a marathon, not a sprint, as they say, you know, it's a long game. And, um, and so that takes you know considerable stamina i'm not i think it can be very exhausting i think that's the harder part is and maybe that's what you're getting at too is you know just maintaining a stamina to um to stay the course of um you know whatever it is getting a thought out there or understanding a problem and and um and moving the needle, you know, toward a better world, which is what I care about. Um, so all of that, I think, is yeah, the stamina. I think is really something. But you know, you asked me very early on in this interview, and I don't think I responded to it. But this question of is there a point where it, there's too much memory? You know, do we need to be revisiting these? say national tragedies these traumas you know do we is there a value in forgetting and um you know it was nietzsche who said too much memory is bad for us it's bad for our health and that we have to be able to stand on like a tiny leaf of forgetfulness where we can let it go 
where we can dance, where we can just be free of it. And I think what he meant, the way I interpret that, is that, um, yeah, memory is, is, is very hard. You know, facing traumas of the world or ourselves, you know, this is, this is very difficult, very difficult. And, um, and it would be too painful if we weren't also able to have those moments of forgetting and enjoying life, you know, and I have that, that's a conversation I also have with a lot of people on the left who, um, be, you know, who have become very despairing. And I'm always saying, you know, if you let them ruin your life, they have won. That we have to, we have to, for lack of a better term, but we have to enjoy life. We have to be, and to me, that's part of this vision of building that world we want to live in uh, is, is living it too, is living life and not that, that, yeah, these are big, sometimes dark questions. Um, but yeah, we have to stand on that Nietzschean leaf of forgetfulness sometimes and just be free people, you know, and be alive and, and in the fullest sense. So, uh, so I think that those balances really are important um, because the despairing left, I think becomes impotent um, in its own way. Yep. Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more there. And it's one of the reasons why we operate the community center in the way we do, which is to like, not just allow all these like, you know, cynical uh, lefties to like sit around and talk about how much the world sucks, but to also get people dancing, have art installations, have live music performances, poetry slams. We have barbecues, soup kitchens, clothing drives. We've done anything and everything under the sun that you can imagine in this space over the last four years. And a lot of it was just to add sort of a more robust environment to the politics and to show people how there's like this interplay between all of these things that you can't have successful political organizations if nobody knows and trusts each other you know like people coming into a meeting and being like hey Joan are you ready to get arrested and it's like I don't even know your last name I don't know where you live I but you're expecting me to like undertake this tremendous sacrifice with you and yet we haven't built the kind of like foundational trust and and sort of social bonds that's required i think to make those things successful i think yeah. it's, it's a huge and culture thing. and art are are ways of um of manifesting these visions of a of of another world and and they're, they play i think an important role i remember reading um about this community center that that bernie helped establish when he was mayor of burlington yeah. And he supported like all these punk musicians, you know, and, and, um, you know, and I love that. I love that innate understanding how culture um, really brings us to a better place in terms of, like you say, knowing each other, trusting each other, feeling joy among each other. Uh, and all of that, I think, is, is empowering on so many levels. Uh, it's not just the icing on the cake. You know, it is the cake. That's the, that's the important point, I think. I mean, because we have a lot of political people who see it as secondary. 
Um, and you make the point at the end of the, I forget exactly how you put it, but it's like where politics fails. I forget. It's like where politics fails and philosophy falters or it's something, it's where something oh, yeah, fails. But art, art has a chance to intervene. Yeah. And yeah. And I believe that. I think there's some things that what I think what art can do that's so important, uh, is, is transcend some of these language problems, you know, that we're talking about. Uh, you know, maybe music more than anything can do that and just hit us on a level that um, transcends language and, and speaks to some other core of our being and of our capacity to um, feel, to feel empathy or compassion or um, all the things we need in in our world to it's going to survive our civilizations um so yeah i do i do believe that very strongly i think it's it's um it's it it's an it's a necessity i really do i think creative creative outlets are are really a necessity i mean on so many levels i mean you could you could look at it as mental health but I think it's so much deeper than that. I think it's it's about tapping into some something, you know, whether you know it's entrepreneurship or painting, you know, something that says that at that affirmation of um, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling has value, has has a, a reason to be expressed, has has a possibility to be expressed. So, yeah, I think those things are, you know, and our culture has, has increasingly undervalued it in our education system. I think to who knows what ultimate negative impact. Um, but when you take away the arts, in the schools and you you just put so much of this rote learning teaching to the test um and and you don't value creativity i mean cultures thrive not by people knowing how to just crunch numbers and siphon wealth into the stratosphere but um with with creative thinking it's what we need to get through this climate crisis. Yeah. I've been teaching the last few years with at Middlebury College in their School of the Environment. And, um, and the founding director of that program, you know, had a very, I think had a really great vision of, uh, he brought me in as an artist and um, he's, he's director of sciences there, he's now retired. But this idea that, you know, it's coming from the director of sciences at a, you know, very high end college to say that the future needs science, scientists and artists to work together. We have to design this future. We have to make, it's a creative process. It's not gonna happen strictly on some quantifiable level. It's gonna happen culturally as well. And that's how, you know, the will to build a future comes, you know, it's part of where it comes from. It's like I'm thinking about 
in some ways we're almost going back to the beginning. It's like the cave paintings came before politics. Um, mm. The, you know, there's all of these, the, the things that you're mentioning are things that's like almost going back in time where it's like, even with philosophy, like there never was a disconnect between science and art or philosophy. Like that started as one thing. It wasn't supposed to be yeah. separated out. So it's like in some ways at this, after so many thousands of years, like now we're going almost not backwards, we're like with the understanding of what we have today, but trying to tap back into, I think, some of those things that we have always understood as being innately part of our experience, that there shouldn't be those sort of separations between philosophy or art or science, um, and that culture and the inherent urge to express ourselves as human beings uh, came long before even, you know, political systems, concepts about politics, you know, just that wanting to scratch something on a cave wall, uh, wanting to build a huge mound in the Neolithic era for uh, our ancestors who've passed away to memorialize their deaths. Yeah. yeah, that urge, very primal. Yeah. Very, very, uh, very deep. Yeah, it's, um, and it's also, I think, you know, even like with the cave paintings, you know, there's some under there's some attempt to to understand what's around them. Obviously, you know the animals, the hunting, um, all the ways this representation is um, is so compelling. You know, it's something else I'm trying to get to in the book, if not overtly in some subtextual way. Uh, you know, we can't escape that that compulsion to represent what's around us. Uh, that's why I don't think it's going away. And I work in that field too. I, I, I make images, you know, it's, um, but, but there, I think there's room for, for, you know, we have to analyze it. We have to also understand and, and observe where it's become some kind of virus yeah do you think that each of us who are in uh, that field so people who are producing images and etc affects and so on that there's a sort of both individual ethical responsibility but then a collective responsibility as well we've been talking a lot about the collective responsibility vis-a-vis -vis politics and so forth but even individually like do you ask the question what am i putting out there I'm sure you asked that question, but how often should I do it? What is like, is there too much? I mean, there's also, we're getting, before you had mentioned the point about uh, Nietzsche and forgetting, I think it was, you were uh, referencing Derrida, who was talking about um, this archival fervor, and maybe it wasn't Derrida, so I apologize if it wasn't him, but you... Yeah, Derrida does write that, yeah, uh, you, archival fever, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that that's like, has like a radical evil element to it as well. So like, how much of this is like, we're trying to archive. Sergio and I have this, I think, the same thing. He's trying to make his documentary. I'm working on a, a chapter for this anthology about the war in Iraq. And I've been paralyzed by the sort of the word count of 5,000 words and saying, okay, you have this chapter. And now what do you want to say about this most traumatic experience in your life that you've also inflicted death and trauma on other people? You have a responsibility to portray that in the most honest and accurate way that I could possibly do so it almost you know it's like I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility on that project I know Sergio feels a tremendous amount of responsibility um 
filming in a place that his family's from and in a place that's under tremendous stress and, and devastation right now is how often do you grapple with that sort of how do you grapple with those questions are there do you have these conversations with friends or are these a lot of like reflections that you deal with in a, in a solitary fashion uh, well I think the question of why am I doing this work and why does it matter is is always there um, it's something I always also talk to students about you know that it's um, it's a big question, you know, and I think self-doubt is always there too in um, one's with one's work. Um, is it good enough? Does it matter? Does anybody care? <laughs> um, all of that. Um, so I mean, those questions, of course, are there. Um, but you mean also the question of like how much is too much yeah yeah how much is too yeah. much and is there yeah, a way yeah. to even determine that well you know when i wrote that when i wrote blackout um it was in the midst of a, a number of projects i did that had to do with war and um and it became too much for me actually it really did i mean there was a point where i realized um uh, it was it was wearing me down, you know, to um, be and also, you know, when you're doing a film and I'm sure Sergio knows um, and but it's the same with writing too. you know, the repetition of um, constantly you're, you're looking at this image over and over and over again, you're editing it and you're taking one frame off here and one frame off there and then you're playing it 6000 more times. Um, you know, the obsessive compulsive nature of just doing the work uh, can be traumatizing to be engaged in those images over and over and over and over again. Um, and um, I, you know, I had to step away from it and, and do other kinds of other, other kinds of things, too. Um, but, you know. It's hard. I think it's like um, political work too, you know, which can be so exhausting, you know, that knocking on doors, having those conversations, you know, just the tedium of it, you know, the tedium and, and then how difficult it is to measure, like where did, where was the impact? Okay, I think that one conversation, you know, something happened, you know, or or however it is it's measured or you see it in the outcome or sometimes it's very disappointing the outcome and uh yeah i think i think with any of the work you know any work that one is trying to do with the idea that it has some kind of role in the discourse or in moving the needle um, is is very taxing. It's very taxing, and I think we all have to we have to take breaks. You know, go swimming or play in the snow, and and not you know it. You know, I I do think you know as I said earlier that you know just in being alive is is a multi dimensional process, and. Um, and I have felt sometimes the left is 
being at risk of being too humorless, too lugubrious, too um, rigid in ways that um, may not serve it well. Sergio's got a big old smile on his face sitting behind the uh, soundboard. He's like, fuck, yeah, that's right on. <laughs> he, he agrees with this 100%. This is stuff, you are you are playing our tune, Joan. Uh, and for people who are watching or listening, I've never spoken with Joan before this, but they're going to laugh because half of the things that you've said about the left are things that we've like consistently said on this program since starting it. So it, it's nice to hear it. Um, I've got sort of two more questions b- before we end. One of them, and this gets right into what we had just talked about, about the limitations of language and the, and the role of film, and that is, I, after reading your book, it was even worse because we finally got the go-ahead for the anthology, and I'm like, I'm like, language is going to fail me. I'm like, how in the hell am I going to write this chapter? Because this is like, I'm like, language is going to fail me, and film would be a much better medium through which to express the kind of things I think that I would like to get across. Because when you're trying to recall those kind of traumatic events as you write in the book and as, as we've talked about earlier, it's like scatter shot. It's not, you don't remember step by step. Like it's, and then in some instances, I mean, surprisingly or, or paradoxically, and sometimes the most violent experiences, you can remember things almost frame by frame, or at least you think you can remember them frame by frame. Now, how much those memories and images actually match up to what we saw and did these are like the questions that I've been asking for years. And sometimes that it seems easier, not easier. How do I put this? It seems better to use that medium of film to do something like that, to recall a catastrophic event, to recall that kind of trauma. This is something that you, you brought up uh, throughout the book, but you, you know, you mentioned it uh, toward the end as well. And I just wanted to get maybe some of your last thoughts on like, where do you think, uh, do you think there's maybe specific areas in life or in our society there that language does play a better role? Here I'm also thinking about um, W.G. Uh, Siebold's work, who you cite, who is talking about this German experience and after World War II, him being like very apprehensive to engage with some of that literature about like romance novels. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Joan, I have yet to read one book by a veteran from the war in Iraq. Uh, I know dozens who've written books. I have yet to read one because I've always been really apprehensive about like how are they portraying this and their connections to home life and romance and ideas about Western civilization. And I just, you know, almost in a paralyzing way, I guess I'm wondering like if you had any like final thoughts that just for people to think about this limitations of language and then the, the role of film and what it can do, especially when trying to portray these catastrophic traumatizing events that, you know, I think those of us who write find language very limiting in trying to to describe all any of those things. Yeah, I you know I think one of the things I was trying to do with Blackout is acknowledge these failures. Is to say that in acknowledging the failure, say the failure of language or the failure of image the failure of representation when it comes to something like the Iraq war, uh, that we, we have to, we have to open up that space for those failures. Instead of saying, how do I find the way to overcome that failure to accept it 
that that is that is part of the story that is um that's where where some of the truth lies is that um we don't have adequate language or images or or um we you know we don't we have we have we have some we have you know it's not like there's no there's no way but but it's there is there's the failure is okay i think that's that's what i want to say you know in a kind of a more vernacular way that um that it's it it is part of the story that traumatic the, the trauma of a especially a war like the iraq war you know they it was scandalous from its inception you know it was built it was a it was a uh a, a i'm talking about a failure of language you know weapons of mass destruction and the whole way language was weaponized to to provoke that war um or to launch that war um it's it's you know, it is, it's a very important part of that story, I think. And, and, um, yeah, I think it's, it's just part of what, you know, we were talking about before, you know, the American, or even you could say the kind of Western enlightenment is about, um, finding certainties and, um, you know, so science has helped us have certain, ideas of, of what's what composes our our world quantifiably um but i think there is a point where you know we we also have to truth is is a very hard thing to to assign certainty to and and that 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 is also a terrifying thing because when you talk about things that where there are rights and wrongs and real breaches of of ethical relations um, that to say, what do you mean there's no truth? Well, I'm not saying there's no truth. I'm just saying truth is is has many facets to it, and it's it's not as easily determined as we want to believe it is, you know and and so, so you know and these are i think where the discourses on war and abuses of power need to to move into those spaces you know where uh where we can where there's room for that you know i i, I mean i'm sure you've run into this you know when in the political sphere how troubled people get if i critique the the democrats as yeah, so though that's then i'm i'm you know then i'm bolstering trump right? right but we have to face failures in across the spectrum and and the failure of language is you know kind of at the heart of of so much of what in our civilization um is has driven it, you know, has memorialized it, has um, canonized it. And um, 
and there's room for failure. You know, I think that's where we, the American, you know, and Western and enlightened vision is very afraid of failure. Failure is, is considered something, um, you know, some kind of breach of character. And um, when, when actually it is, it is part of our makeup you know, I became interested in this blackout. This why why is it that you know in these very traumatic events, like and you're saying you try to remember what happened, let's say in some event in Iraq. You know, so even our our brains are somehow um, programmed or somehow exist in a way to shut down. You know, to shut some of this out shut it down just it it it's it the overwhelming there's a there's a limit to our capacity and that doesn't you know and so maybe failure is the wrong word maybe we need another word for for that but i think part of it is also acknowledging these vulnerabilities you know our culture doesn't like vulnerability it's it's very disdainful of it it's the uh number one Humility and vulnerability seem to be the two concepts that I've... Humility, vulnerability, and discipline have been the three concepts I've thought about the most since getting home from the war. Uh, vulnerability because growing up in such a... You know, it's like cliche to say these days, but like a hyper-toxic masculine environment. And it's true. There's truths to that. I do think there's some people on the left who have kind of... I don't know, taking that into a realm that's unhelpful for us, like talking about, you know, males in society or people who identify as males, et cetera. Um, but there is a lot of truth to it where, you know, I was, I grew up in a working class, blue collar union family, all veterans, Italian family, you know, you're tough, you shut up, you do what you do, you take care of people. And that's the end of it. Uh, and then watching so many of our fellow veterans come home and kill themselves or die from drug overdoses more of whom then died in our platoon while we were in the war. And, mm -hmm. you know, Serge and I, a lot of times it kind of goes back to, you know, inability to be, to open yourself up and be vulnerable and to just tell people, Hey, this is too much for me right now, or I'm having a hard time coping. I don't know how to deal with this. I'm having thoughts. I feel sad. All of those things come back to that ability to, to sort of open yourself up and, and to be vulnerable. And how would I, yeah, I guess the the to to sort of wrap up, you know, at the end of your book, you're talking about finding ethics, but finding ethics through like recognizing. Tell me if I'm wrong here. Through recognizing not only our own mortality, um, but the mortality of the other. Uh, can you sort of talk a little bit about that and sort of what you mean by finding those ethics in in our mortality and how much? This would be a second question. Would be it also seems to me that we live in a culture that really doesn't like talking about death at all, you know, and it gets back to maybe ideas about certainty or living forever or whatever it may be. But that also, it, that's something that, you know, I've wanted to talk about for years because it's like, Oh, I'm thinking about death all the time. And it's been this. Well, if you want to do another show on death, I would be very interested in that actually. Okay. So uh, let's do that. Because I, yeah, that's something I'm also very interested in. Um, but yeah, I think that's all of what you say is is exactly right. I think um, yeah. So 
the end of the book, the idea of recognizing that uh, finitude, you know, as Avital would say, um, that recognizing just that shared, the share, that shared experience. Yeah, I don't think, you know, empires aren't built on mortality. You know, empire is about, you know, living on beyond, you know, any mortality. And so, you know, that that's obviously a very flawed concept. So, um, but, but it's very much embedded in our culture. And, um, and I do think that the only way forward for our civilization, you know, is to find the humility and the vulnerability and to um, take care of the vulnerable, vulnerable and to um, be more humble to our natural world, the animal world, you know, to be, to be good stewards, you know, to not just consume it um chew it up and spit it out you know that's that's what empire is to some to a large extent so so you know our i think i think part of the failure of language is that failure is considered a failure <laughs> yeah there's the paradox um but that um that all these vulnerabilities are 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 not um are not accepted in the narrative, the the this the grand narrative of exceptionalism, you know, which is, you know, we're we're always right, you know, you know, and I think Trump personified that to such a bombastic degree, um, and it's interesting how it did resonate for so many, you know, and I think um, the left has to pay attention very closely to the fact that, okay, yes, we won this election, but Trump got more votes in 2020 than in 2016. And so there's no falling off of support, but there is um, on some level, a very deep need to believe in this mythology of um, winning being right, you know, all of that, that hyper-masculine um, kind of uh, persona of, of identity. And, um, you know, so I'm, I, I think this is, this is what we're up against in terms of language and, and politics and um, all kinds of everything that makes up our, our, civilization these these are you know very fundamental sets of values that are are um being put out there in this kind of rugged individual there is no other um which is essentially what you know a certain strain of the american and western narrative is you know, I think the reason why so many Asian countries did so much better with the pandemic is there's a much stronger sense of collective 
um, responsibility in Asia. Across. And I know that's that's probably a you know a little bit of a um, generalization, which I don't like to make, but sure. I mean, but um, but it exists, you know, and and um, and and so you know, and so that's interesting. I mean, there's you can you can quantify the outcome. You know, with the pandemic, for instance, it'll be interesting to see what kind of studies come out that look at some of those cultural factors in um, in the outcome. Because even here, you know, or I have many friends in Europe who um, just got, you know, have gotten tired of, of complying, say, with wearing a mask, you know, or, or that you do it for other people um it's 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 a it's a it's it's a problem culturally how we embrace the other and that collective responsibility and that common good but i do believe that's where the glimmer the pinhole of light at the end of the tunnel is i agree joan thank you so much for your time thank you We've for taken, having like, me two hours of your time and I didn't expect to take that much, but well, I knew it. I knew as soon as I finished, <laughs> as soon as I finished that book, I was like, man, I can't, I've been excited as hell to talk to you all week. So I thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you. I mean, I've really, really enjoyed our conversation and I hope we can do it again. We will, so. we will. And I will send Avital an email tonight and tell her, thanks. I had interviewed her. I've been interviewing her for a while now. I've about 10 years. We have a couple mutual friends, one of whom teaches at uh, University of Notre Dame, Olivier Morel, uh, who's a really, really sharp filmmaker in his own right, uh, and also a, a professor over there of literature. But um, yeah, I had asked her, I said, hey, do you have anybody in mind that I'm just looking for some names I might not have heard of? And she, you were like number one on the list with about wow. four or five other people. So I have to thank her for for uh, turning me on to you. So I, I appreciate well, it. Well, I have to thank her too, because I really enjoyed this. Cool. I'm glad. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at parkmedia.org. Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.